Hey, and welcome back to the latest installment of the Music History Project. Today, we are very excited because we have an extra special guest in the house, Mr. Deke Dickerson. Yay! Yay. I'm happy to be here. (laughs) (laughs) So let's get ready to talk rockabilly. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Elizabeth Dale. And Dan Del Fiorentino. And Mike Mullins. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. And that is a program that is over 3,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you want to check out any of our content or any of the other interviews that aren't featured, please check out our website at www.nam.org slash library. So I think a really good way for us to start this episode is to have Dan maybe introduce our guest. Well, I am so glad you said that, Elizabeth, because uh, Deke is a guy whose name I've seen around in the research of uh, music history, particularly about country and Western and rockabilly for many years. And it's quite an honor to shake his hand just a few minutes ago for the first time and then forcibly put him down in a chair and do this podcast. So, Deke, thank you so much for being here. I'm super glad to be here. I don't know how many times I've referenced your your webcast things that you you, you just told me a minute ago you've done 4,000 of them. Getting close. That's yeah. crazy. Okay. Well, I'm glad to be here. <laughs> It's our pleasure. Thank you so much. So we thought, hey, while the expert's in the house, let's take a few minutes to do a podcast on the great genre of a rockabilly. And perhaps a good place to start, Deke, if you wouldn't mind, give us a little bit of history. Where does rockabilly come from in in your estimation? Well, I assume you mean not just a geographical place. You know, rockabilly is an interesting thing because it's had a whole lot longer of an afterlife than it ever had when it was a fresh, actual happening thing. Mm. So it's spent decades being this thing that's visited sort of as a, you know, a retro vintage kind of a, a thing. But rockabilly itself, man, it was like this, it was like a firecracker going off. It happened, it was really loud, it was a big bang, and then it was over. And so if you really look at uh, when it was happening, it was a couple of years, you know, maybe like 1955 to 1958. That was it. And that was it. Yeah. So, Oh, I was oh, going to go say, I, I'm notorious for asking the dumb questions on this podcast. So I'll ask the dumb question. What makes rockabilly different to the layman than traditional rock and roll, how people would see, see rock and roll? Well, I'll answer that question by saying, you know, I guess it was about 15 years ago that swing music was had experienced this big revival, and it was very commercial. You know, I mean, there was a lot of people making a ton of money off of it. And at the time, I had people coming to me saying, well, I think rockabilly is going to be the next big thing. And I was saying, I don't know. I mean, rockabilly music was made by crazy Southerners who exa- <laughs> who inhaled too much exhaust fumes and who were mostly uncontrollable alcoholics and sang about subjects that normal people cannot relate to. <laughs> so, you know, from that standpoint, it was like, no, that's never going to happen. And it didn't happen. Uh, you know, the, the few times that, that rockabilly has cracked the charts, it's been sort of a real safe 
version of it, you know? Mm, absolutely. I like that description. That's how I'm going to describe it to everybody I else. think you should, yeah. <laughs> I love it. Well, it's not too much different. And I wonder from a musical standpoint, it's not a whole lot different than what a lot of people conjure up as early 50s country and Western music, right? I mean, obviously, that was part of its roots. It's an interesting thing, and obviously, I've sort of obsessed over it because, man, there's just a fraction of difference between late 1940s hillbilly boogie and rockabilly. But there'll be a fiddle in there or there'll be a steel guitar, whereas rockabilly doesn't have those instruments. And a lot of the the earlier country stuff that resembles rockabilly was done by older guys, you know, maybe guys that had more of a jazz background or, or something like that. And, you know, technically, in my definition of rockabilly, it's a, it's a really primitive, raw thing that's mostly done by teenagers. So there's a lot of things that, to the layperson, might even sound, hey, this sounds like rockabilly to me, uh, but if you really dissect it, I don't think it is, you know. And I, I always like to say there's a million shades of gray to everything. Because, <laughs> honestly, there's some recordings from... 1951, 1952, where if you play them next to, you know, Elvis's Sun Sessions from 1954, it's like, that sounds virtually identical. But there's something about those earlier recordings that's not quite the thing that Elvis had. Hmm. Maybe it's like one percentage away. And what is that? I mean, to me, there's always the drum, bass, guitar, right? But when Scotty played the electric bass, that's, I mean, electric guitar, that certainly made a difference, yep. right? Well, honest to God, I, I think that, uh, to me, the thing that clearly delineates rockabilly and rock and roll from everything that came before it is fear and shock and panic. <laughs> I mean, if it scared the crap out of people, then it's actually rock and roll or rockabilly. Um, if it's something that people thought was cutesy or fun, it is not rock and roll or rockabilly. And, you know, we've spent so many decades of rock and roll being in the mainstream that you sort of forget, you know, when a guy like Elvis came to town and was shaking his pelvis in your 15-year-old daughter's face, it was frightening. I mean, people were scared to death of it. It's like, who is this guy? He's a white guy, but he's acting and he's sounding and he's talking like a black guy, and we don't like that. So, I mean, it was, it was real fear, shock, and panic. That's a very unique perspective. I mean, I think you're spot on, definitely. But you, I think if you asked a lot of people that question, it would be very like technical. Well, this instrument's missing, or this yeah, riff is different. Yeah, if you listen to the bass in this song, yeah, it but really it's like, mm, yeah. no, it's about attitude, mm-hmm. man. So I like that. I think that's really neat. Well, and and you know, I've tried to figure out where a lot of this stuff comes from. You know, like the twelve bar blues progression and and um, certain types of guitar picking. And the main thing that you really have to understand is that pre-internet, pre-television, even pre-movies, there was so much more live music going on than there is now. I mean, there was like live music in every household, pretty much. Everybody had some instrument they would play or people would sing together. And so a lot of these things are untraceable because they just kind of happened organically and naturally, and there was hardly any record of when it happened or where or why or any of that. Mm-hmm. So who are some of the quintessential pioneers of rockabilly in your estimation? Well, you know, it's interesting because money and fame 
always drives everything. And so when Elvis came out of the gate, I mean, man, he was like a, a bucking Bronco. It was like, wow, this guy's making money and he's getting really famous. So then all of a sudden there was all these guys that were doing the same thing. Um, but if you look at the time immediately preceding it, it's interesting. Like I see Charlie Gracie here on this list. Here's a guy, he's got basically no Southern connections at all. He's in New Jersey, Philadelphia. Uh, he's from Philly, of course. I should mention that or he'd be very upset with me. <laughs> but but he, he performed a lot, you know, in like beach cities in Jersey. And he's coming up with a thing that's like, like I was saying earlier, it's like maybe one or two degrees off from Elvis, you know. Um, and there's just a handful of guys like that. Um, if I had to reference a thing I was talking about a minute ago, there's a recording from 1951 of this young kid named Jimmy Lee Fathery playing I'm Moving On on the, uh, um, I'm forgetting the name of the, the broadcast now. It was a Dallas uh, show. It was extremely popular. It's going to come to me in just one second. But it was put out on a, uh, a CD a few years ago, and a, and a bunch of us were like, dude, this is 1951, and this is full-on rockabilly. Except that all of a sudden there's a fiddle solo, you know, and it's on this it's on this very established country show. Um, so I just kind of think that a lot of those things were happening and people weren't paying attention. And it took a really good looking guy like Elvis, who had really good songs and who then all of a sudden was having success and fame and money and all that to make people sort of pay attention to it. That's like everything else, really. Hmm. It's very interesting. So, Elizabeth, tell us a little bit about our hopes for today's podcast. Yeah. So normally, as you guys know who are listening, our program is just Mike, Dan, and myself talking through some of the interviews that Dan has collected over the years, but we're going to do things a little bit differently. You're still going to hear that interview content that Dan has captured over the years, but most of the time we're going to preface it with a short discussion with Deke about you know some of his impressions, their... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Claim to fame. Yeah, thanks. Their claim to fames, <laughs> what makes them noticeable and famous within the rockabilly world and what really cements them in there. So we're going to kind of take a unique perspective on the content and then Mike is going to work his magic for you guys and you'll hear their web clip, which you can always find online at www.nam.org slash library. That was really impressive. Thank oh you. Oh, I'm practicing. Let's I'm go impressed. home. Thanks, so who's the first one up? <laughs> Oh, I know. It's the wild man of rockabilly, <laughs> Sonny. Can we talk a little bit about Sonny Burgess? Absolutely. Well, I, I got to play with Sonny Burgess a number of times, and I just the thing that always amazed me about Sonny was that he really wanted to be polished, and he really wanted to be sophisticated, and he would talk to me about, you know, how much he loved certain modern things. You know, he loved Vince Gill and he loved Stevie Ray Vaughan, stuff like that. And he really wanted to be like that. But every time he started playing guitar and opened his mouth, it was just like this barn door from central Arkansas being swung open. <laughs> and he would probably take great offense at that. But I, it was just the greatest thing because, you know, in this day and age where so much of the uh, regional differences have been erased uh, due to, you know, corporate structures, Starbucks being everywhere, et cetera. Um, 
man, it was great because all of a sudden it was Arkansas, 1955, you know, and this guy was just screaming and you couldn't really understand what he was saying and he was playing these really primitive licks on the guitar and it was just awesome. Um, and I actually just drove through Arkansas about a month ago and went through Newport where he was from and it's so isolated, you know. I mean, it's not that far from Memphis, but at the same time it's like you're a good – I mean, you're hours from any kind of big city. You know, Memphis wasn't even really a big city at that time. And so these guys were just country, you know. And there's a huge number of black people down there, so there's a ton of black radio. And you can just smell it in the air down there. They were absorbing black influences. They were listening to country music. You know, they heard about Elvis. It just all kind of mixed together. And one of I'll, I'll keep rambling here if that's okay. Uh, one of Sonny's songs just came on random shuffle on my iPod on this drive that I did just the last few days. And that first line, he says, we jumped in our fliver. I jumped in my fliver. You know, and of course, that's a word we don't even use anymore, but it's completely unintelligible. The way he's saying it is like, well, I jumped in my fliver, took my baby to town. And you think, wow, that's like the first line on his record that he was trying to make like a national hit record with. And you can't understand it. And I love that personally. I mean, it's so wild and it's so untamed. There is just no effort to tamp that down at all, you know. And that, to me, that's the essence of Sonny Burgess. As I say, it makes him uniquely him, right? And a, a unique identity to what he was doing. Well, nobody sounds like Sonny Burgess. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, if, if we're just continuing to ramble on about Sonny Burgess, I don't know if anybody else has pointed out that at one point, to gather attention to himself, he dyed his hair red, he wore a red suit with red shoes, and he played a red guitar. <laughs> and, you know, that's the sort of thing that, like, a pop singer never would have done. A country singer really wouldn't have done that. Uh, a blues singer never would have done that. That's pretty much specifically something that only would have happened after Rockabilly came in. Hmm. When you played with them, did you play uh, We Want the Boogie? Oh, yeah, we played all the great songs. <laughs> that must have been a kick. And, you know, if you lit a fire under him, he could still just really deliver it. I remember probably the greatest show I ever saw of him. He had a... a his original piano player, Kern Kennedy, and his original drummer, Bobby Crawford. And I wasn't actually on this gig, but man, it was just like the crowd and the band and everything just lit a fire under him. And all of a sudden, it was just 1956. There was just all those decades just dropped away. You know, it was incredible. That's fantastic. So let's hear a little clip from Sonny's interview. My first guitar was a Gene Autry. Bought it from several bucks, cost three dollars and a quarter. Flat top? Flat top, yeah. Then my next guitar I bought from, at uh, Van Dyke's was another flat top. It was a K. Gerald Jackson had a arch top K. And I ran over it with a Jeep. <laughs> it cost thirty-five dollars. I didn't even have thirty-five dollars to buy him another guitar. <laughs> And the next guitar I bought was a, uh, when it came out of the Army, I bought me, I went to Little Rock, bought a 1952 Telecaster. 
And I kept that for, well, what did I buy next? Oh, I bought a Scotty Moore guitar, the Gold Gibson, the 295. That's what it cost, $295 in the case. Then I traded that off for a red Fender Stratocaster, 56. I had them make me a red Stratocaster. And I didn't like it that well, so I traded it off for um, oh, a Gibson Firebird. Then I had a Guild guitar, which I've still got. The other guitars I don't. They sold the gold. Uh, and boy, Little Rock bought it off the guy that bought it. Bought them at Van Dyke's furniture store there in Newport. There wasn't a music store. There wasn't many music stores around back then. Either went to Little Rock, Memphis. And um, so you had to, I got into it with my brother-in-law's there when Fred, you know, was we, in fact, I was reading the deal the other day about magnetone. Amps, mag, yeah, magnetone, wasn't it? Yeah. Made a, they made one of the best uh, courses of any amp ever made. Nobody ever really came close to them. Hmm. And I owned, uh, I used Fred's amp for a while, then I bought one. Rickenbacker bought, out here, bought the rights for it, and they put out just like it, except it was gray. I bought it, I got tired of fooling with that tape in the bottom breaking, and uh, I started using it to push two 15-inch speakers, big speakers. Oh, I could really make that feedback, man. Man, since then I've still got telecaster. I got a couple of three telecasters and uh, one Stratocaster, which I like. I play a lot. All right, so that was Sonny Burgess, and we're going to move on to our next notable name, and that is Junior Brown. So Junior, I believe, was uh, from Arizona and had a great influence from the guys that we're talking about today, Elvis and Sonny and those guys. And what always struck me about Junior is he helped in that gap that we were talking about earlier, the revival of Rockabilly over the years. There's been two or three really pretty good ones. And uh, Junior was a part of one of those. And he added a unique style, I think, um, that was more musical than the the peers that he had at that time. And I was always very impressed by that because he obviously paid a lot of attention to chord progressions and the musical styles of his influences. Is that your take on Junior? Well, the, the main thing you have to point out about Junior is just he's just a monster player. I mean, just a monster. I mean, he's he's obviously rated as a guitar player, but the fact that he you know wears a cowboy hat and plays this weird git steel instrument, I think makes a lot of people not realize just how great he really is. Um, you know, and then that being said, he's Junior Brown. I mean, he's totally his unique individual, and nobody else sings like that, and obviously nobody else plays a git steel, you know. So I salute the fact that he just created this persona and just really knocked it out of the park. Can you, uh, Deke, give us a description of the, the git guitar? So, you know, there's been double neck guitars and multi neck guitars, but they're pretty much designed to play like regular guitars. Um, and then there's steel guitars that you play sitting down with them either on your lap or, you know, in a, in a horizontal console. 
And many of those are two or three or four necks, but they're all designed to be horizontally played steel guitars. And so what Junior did, it's a, it's a real kooky thing. He decided he was going to make a double neck instrument that had one regular neck and one steel guitar on it. And I still can't quite figure out how he switches back and forth. I know that he has a little hole where he puts his steel bar in, you know, and I think he kind of wears the picks, you know, all the time when he's playing the regular guitar and stuff. But but he sort of switches back and forth effortlessly, and people don't realize, yeah, nobody else can do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nobody. Yeah, I, the first time I saw him was at the Nashville NAM show in 2001, I believe it was, and just blew me away. You're just standing there and with your mouth open, and you look around, and so is everybody else. <laughs> and he's, you know longevity man i mean when did he burst on the scene uh with that first album it was early mid 90s maybe Mm -hmm. he's still out there doing it he's still as great as ever so let's hear from junior brown himself probably my greatest influence uh, instrumentally uh, lloyd green Uh, there's just not enough i can say about uh, his ability to make a, a record sound good and all the every time i go to a flea market and look for albums to buy. I don't buy very many CDs. I buy some, but mostly I buy LPs, because uh, that's where you can find more music on them. They, they, haven't, they haven't turned the music that I like into CDs very much of it. Some of it they have. But, so I'm always looking for these records that were recorded in between, say, 64 and 74, which was really the renaissance of, of so much of, of our culture, and particularly country music. There was so much good stuff going on at that time, and Lloyd was a big part of it. Um, so I look for the records that have him on that, as well as the, some of the other great session players, Buddy Harmon on drums, Bob Moore on bass. It's usually a lot of those same same guys that made a lot of those records. I got a star on my car and one on my chest. A gun on my hip and the right to rest. I'm the guy who's a boss on this highway. So watch out what you're doing when you're driving my way. If you break the law, you'll hear from me, I know. I'm working for the state, I'm the highway patrol. Well, you'll know me when you see me, but my door painted white. With my siren, I'm screaming and my flashing red light. I work all day and I work all night Just to keep in law and order trying to do what's right If I write you out a ticket then you better drive slow I'm just doing my job on the highway patrol I'm a highway patrol, a highway patrol My hours are long and my pay is low But I'll do my best to keep you driving slow I'm just doing my job on the highway patrol I'm coming after you If you want to race Then get on the racetrack Or if you try to run away I want to bring you back I'm here to keep all the speeders driving slow I'm just doing my job I'm the highway patrol 
Yeah, I'm a highway patrol, a highway patrol. I'm an hour long and my pay is low. But I'll do my best to keep you driving slow. I'm just doing my job on the highway patrol. I'm just doing my job on the highway patrol. <laughs> So I booked Junior at my Guitar Geek Festival. I believe it was 2011. And I didn't really know Junior personally. I just knew that he had a reputation for a somewhat, uh, you know, he had a temper on him. Like I've heard a lot of people say, yeah, he always yells at the promoters, yells at the guys in his band, whatever. So the whole, every step of the way, I'm thinking, okay, I just have to be mentally prepared because at some point Junior is going to unload on me. And so I, I'm talking to him on the phone. Everything's cool. I buy him plane tickets. Everything's cool. They fly in. Everything's cool. He's at the hotel. Everything's cool. He comes to the gig. He's walking around looking at our museum display. You know, we have a nice conversation. Everything's great. Then he does his show, and it's just fantastic. You know, it's just really just one of the best shows we ever had at the Guitar Geek Festival. And the show was at this hotel right across from where the NAMM show was at. And there was kind of a little area in the back by the pool where people were hanging out, talking to Junior, and he's surrounded by about five or six people. And, of course, I'm the promoter, so after the show, i got to get busy. i got to break stuff down. i got to, you know, pay people, do all my stuff. And I just went over to where Junior was surrounded by all these people, and I said, Junior, if I don't get a chance to talk to you, thank you so much for doing the show. It was fantastic. And, uh, and then he goes, Deke. <laughs> and there's this really long pause. <laughs> and I'm just like, here we go. Here we go. And he goes, Deke, give me a hug. <laughs> <laughs> so then I hugged him. I'm like, this is even weirder than getting yelled at. <laughs> That's the end of my story. <laughs> Uh, clearly, that needs to stay. Pa- long so, pause and all. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> of fantastic. Of course. Oh, man. Well, now I think it's time we move on to our third rockabilly name, and that is Roy Gaines. Yes, indeed. Uh, Mr. Roy, an amazing guy whose uh, who's brother is a very famous saxophone player who I also got to interview and uh, as a saxophone player myself was quite in awe with. So when I got a chance to talk to Roy, I was... Uh, rather happy about the fact that he talked in much more detail than his brother did about their influences. And that was really of great interest to me because as an African-American, I would expect him to have talked a lot about blues and rhythm and blues guys. And mostly he's talking about country guys as being his influence. And I think this goes back to Deke's uh, statement earlier about just a lot of these guys from the rockabilly era grew up in the middle of nowhere country and they were listening to country music that's what they knew that's what they grew up with and so when they had a a influence of some other styles of music they easily blended it together with something that they felt was uh, comfortable to them and that was the impression I got from Roy did you ever get a chance to meet with him I did Um, it was sort of a strange story I, I was supposed to back him up in New Orleans Talked to, him on, talked to him on the phone several times, and then I hung out with him in New Orleans. We were playing a two-day festival, and 
after the first day, the second day got canceled because of a hurricane warning. So we, I, we didn't wind up doing the gig, but I got to spend a lot of time with him. And, uh, you know, the cool thing about Roy Gaines and Chuck Berry and a few other African-American guitar players from that era, you have to understand that, like, you know, pre-1955, hardly anybody had a television set. It was just all radio. And so when you're living out in the country, it doesn't matter if you're black or white, you're tuned, you know, you're here in the Grand Ole Opry, right. you're here in the, the Black Blues station, you have to like tune past it to get to the next radio station. So I have found that a lot of those guys from that era, they all grew up listening to the Grand Ole Opry, you know, they all grew up listening to country and pop and jazz and blues the same way that the, the white rockabilly guys did. And when you hear a record like Chuck Berry's Maybelline, like, that's a rockabilly record you know there's no way around it that's mm. a that's a black guy singing a country song it's just you know it's like a rockabilly thing done in the exact opposite order and Roy Gaines is definitely on the same wavelength um you know whenever whenever a guy like him sees a guy like me it's going to back him up of course the first thing he does like oh you a country guy huh wearing that cowboy hat and so you know we had a, a funny conversation about that <laughs> but then i told him like no nah, i live in la just like you uh but but yeah the the amount of common musical ground mm. between the country and blues stuff of that era it's it's amazing and roy's great man what an underappreciated guy well, that was one of the things that I was I felt sort of honored to interview him because I think that the oral history collection is really enriched when we have the opportunity to include people like him, you know, under the radar um, and maybe not as appreciated as they probably should have been, but have a vast knowledge and also uh, an influence. There's an awful lot of people that are playing licks and and uh, chord progressions and changes and not really knowing exactly how they came about, but they have people like Roy to thank for. And, and I also, you know, the thing I was going to mention about Roy is when I was, I almost felt like I was sitting at his knee at his feet, you know, when I'm interviewing him, because it's like, oh my gosh, you know, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me all this stuff. And he's mentioning some people, and I remember one line he gave me was, um, yeah, then I worked for Big Mama Thornton, but you don't want to hear about that. I'm like, oh no, you don't understand. <laughs> yes, I do want to hear about that. <laughs> now, have you ever heard his rockabilly record, Skippy oh, is a Sissy? Oh yeah, of course. That is, I mean, that's com it's a completely mental record. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you look at all this other stuff he did, it's, you know, it's very kind of like rhythm and blues, you know, right, straight jazz, ahead straight and, ahead yeah. stuff. Right. And then you play that record like, wait, <laughs> that's you? <laughs> you know, I mean, that is just a mental record. It really is. And we were going to do it. I was so bummed we didn't get to play mm. with him. So here's Roy, and he's going to be talking about his experience getting his first guitar. I saw this guitar at Crown Jewelers. Crown Jewelers was a popular jewelry store for wedding rings and things like that. But they had a little music section. They didn't have that much music um, in that area, but it was, it was a little music section. And it had this brand new, beautiful K. It was a K guitar sitting in a stand and a little amp matching the, it was tan, a tan color and like uh, some tan and it was a light, light brown, tannish guitar and case and uh, 
amplify, match them. I bought it. So it sort of just psyched me out, like to have this guitar. I had to come back home on the bus, and I was just thinking, how could I get this guitar? So um, when I did arrive, my mother was there, and I lit in on it, you know. I said, I just got to have this guitar. And, and this amp that I just seen, I said, I, I want to play guitar. Because, you know, all the great people coming through Houston to play guitar seemed like they're having a great go at it, you know. And so she immediately said, I bought you that piano. <laughs> you didn't do anything with that. What make you think you can do something with a guitar? And oh, it just went on and on. And so I said, well, I tell you like it is, I say, there's a boy named Leo in the next block. And Leo and his brother, Leon, they don't pay rent. And and they they go in and out of their house every day and and when it's raining and they they can be inside and they, they can, I guess they're eating food, they're still alive. I say, and uh, I'm paying rent and I'm paying for food. I say, I should have some kind of help if I'm gonna help you with the responsibilities of this house at my age. <laughs> so she lit in on me make a long story short, she let in on me. She said, well, I'm going to tell you something. Said, every penny you ever gave me is over there in that trunk, sitting inside the wall there. And it's got just the way you gave it to me. It's in fruit jars and whatever kind of jar I could find, whatever kind of container I could find to put it in. And it's lined up on the far side of the trunk, she said, and you've got two choices. You can go over there and get that money and mess it up on some guitar or whatever, or you can leave it there and you'll always have money. But if you get it, you're gonna always, you get it and spend it, you're gonna always be broke. You'll never have any money all your days. Well, that kind of shook me. You know, I didn't, know what the results of that conversation would be from her angle. Because uh, I, I, I just couldn't dig in that far into my life. And so I took a chance on being broke. I said, I got to have it. And so I went over there and I got it out and I, I, I kept pouring it out and counting it until I got to $185. That's what I needed. and I. I never, I never knew what ever happened to the rest of it because I started making money immediately after I got the guitar, almost maybe three or four, three or four months. Okay, so a little earlier we were talking about uh, Charlie Gracie, and so I thought this would be a good opportunity to uh, bring his name up again because we'd love to play a segment from his NAM oral history interview. And uh, let's reflect a little bit on, on this guy who probably uh, many people know um, for his 1956, I believe it was, Butterfly Tune. Um, but there's a little bit more to this guy. Uh, what I was really intrigued by is 
how many musical styles this guy really draws upon when he plays. Well, and I've got to work with Charlie a couple of different times, and the immediate thing that struck me was, okay, so he had these sort of poppy rock and roll type things, you know, Butterfly and 99 Ways. Uh, but then, man, that guy is, he's just a, I, I hesitate to use the word tyrant because I'm, I'm afraid that if he heard it, he would miss, he would misinterpret that. But I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that he is just a monster player, monster singer, and just this huge personality. Mm. Tiny little guy, but when he walks in the room, it's like, it's Charlie Gracie time, you know? <laughs> and and it's, you're, you're in Charlie's world until he leaves, you know what I mean? He's just, I love that guy. I love being around him because guys like that have have almost all left the building, you know? Uh, you really get a sense back in the old days of just how strong of a force you had to be to make any kind of name for yourself, especially in a tough place like Philly. You know, I mean, just picking up a guitar and singing songs, that would probably, like, get you beat up in his neighborhood, you know? So you had to be really strong and really tough and and just have a really, just like a, a force that could not be stopped. You know, it's really interesting to me because when we're talking about early rock and roll, for example, and, and folks point out Elvis drawing from his church roots and country and, and the blues that he heard in Tupelo and stuff like that, I, I almost always think of Charlie because there is in one interview for the NAM Oral History Program, he drew on 15 or 16 styles of music. I mean, he was singing four or five Italian songs in Italian, just like they were very popular in the early 50s. You know, pop music at that time had plenty of those type of songs. And then he'd jump right to a Dean Martin and he'd jump right to uh, uh, Charlie, uh, oh, who was I thinking? Uh, Chuck Berry, he played a Fats Domino song on his guitar. I mean, he just is all over the place. And I thought, see, this is the melting pot of music. It's personified in this one guy. Yep. And he will be happy to perform those songs, <laughs> whether you are sitting at the breakfast table in France, where I've, I've been with him, or, you know, backstage at a, uh, a festival in New Orleans. It doesn't matter. Charlie is always on. He's always performing, you know. He's one of those guys. Thoughts about Butterfly? Well, you know, it's interesting because Philadelphia was really one of the first places to offer like a a, a real mainstream kind of neutered version of rock and roll. Hmm. And I think that if Charlie had been in a place like Memphis or a place like Chicago, uh, his records would have been much wilder, you know. But I think he's, you know, he's on Cameo Parkway. Uh, it's 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 definitely a thing of okay we're gonna make this pop record to get you on the charts and it did just that you know um, but I every time I hear his hit records I just always think yeah but man have you heard him do guitar boogie it's insane <laughs> but you know on the other hand he's had this huge career in England and I think that that's because those records butterfly and 99 ways and I'm forgetting the other one that he kind of had a hit with back then. They were huge hits in England. Mm. And I think there was something about that sort of popabilly style of those records that was able to just go mainstream in England in a, in a way that he wasn't able to go huge over here. He was He's still huge over there. Awesome. So let's go right to uh, Charlie's uh, uh, sound clip from his uh, NAM oral history interview. I got no complaints. I mean, 
Life's been good to me. Listen, I've, the Bible says three score and ten. I passed that by seven years. Mm. Most of my contemporaries are all dead, I'm sorry to say. I'm still here. I'm still active. I'm still healthy. I, I love what I do, and I can't wait for the next gig. I can't wait to get on a plane Tuesday so I can perform Wednesday when I get there. You know what I mean? That's cool. Yeah, I mean, I love what That's I do. That's a great outlook. Well, I mean, I love it. If I didn't, I wasted a whole lifetime doing this. You know what I'm trying to say? Mm -hmm. Wasted a lifetime. It's, um, and then every once in a while, somebody like you comes along, you want to talk to me, I'll tell you, I'll tell you the truth about my life. Mm -hmm. I probably left 50,000 things out, but I just tried to give it a couple of highlights and the lowlights. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, there was times when... Uh, my kid had a birthday, and I had to go exchange soda bottles to get a few bucks. I buy a little cake to give him. You know, it went from here to here to there, and I had to start back up again. So I never hit the, the top of the, the pyramid anymore, but I'm, maybe I'm like halfway there again. Mm. At a nice, comfortable point in my life. You know what I mean? Uh, the worst is over for me. I mean, if I got a few years left, whatever's left for me, I'm content. I'll die happy. I don't want to leave my wife and kids. Nobody does. But that's, we're all headed in the same direction. That's the great equalizer in life. Rich or poor, famous, unknown, everybody has the same fate awaiting them. That's the justice there is. Now, if there's something beyond that, I believe there is, we get rewarded. If there's nothing there, it's a choice. You have to make that choice. We all have a choice to make. But if I was a gambler, I wouldn't, I'd hedge my bet. <laughs> you know what I'm trying to say? <laughs> yeah, yeah. When I go to sleep at night, sometimes it's hard for me to fall asleep because I have all these songs going through my head, you know? Drives you crazy sometimes. It's addictive. You know when you love when you love what you do, man. Later around it's later. So summer's on and winter's coming on. And I feel like I've got to travel. I always had a great rhythm hand. See, when you play alone, there's no other instruments. You use the guitar, you use a drum, you know, you have that. Well, here's this Now, a regular guitar play. Well, here's this It's different. He used to say, what, do you got a tree over there? No, it's a guy alone with the guitar. It's that little backbeat that... So I played that even the beginning before the backbeat was accented in the two and four in rock and roll. Well, that was Butterfly, right? Well, yeah. There was a ukulele on that record. Oh, was it? And a four-string guitar. I had one of the great guitar players out of Philadelphia, Joe Scrow, great guitar player out of Philly. He played the, uh, I think he played the four-string guitar, and uh, it was an old-timer who played the ukulele on it. Che bella cosa, la giornata sole, aria fresca, dopo la tempesta. Che bella cosa, la giornata sole, che bella cosa, la giornata sole. Oh, solo mio, sta in fronte a te, oh, solo mio, sta in fronte a te, oh, sole, oh, sole mio, sta in fronte a te, sta in fronte a te. Yesterday, all my trouble seems so far away. Now it looks as though they're here to stay. I believe. Yesterday, and so forth, Americans. You know what I mean?
I mean, it's just, it's, it's just, I'm... Um, I mean, there's, there's so many variations of music there. I just, I just like, I just love it. I just love it. So next up, we're going to be hearing from a familiar name. Um, we've heard from her in the Women in the Music Industry podcast that we did, as well as the podcast all about Elvis, and that is Wanda Jackson. Hooray! I think we should applaud. I love <laughs> Wanda. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> Deke, what are your thoughts on, on the, the queen of rockabilly? Well, I, I just remember when I was a young kid, first getting into rockabilly, and, it, you know, obviously a lot of this stuff that we're talking about is it's a lot of males, a lot yeah. of dudes. Mm. And then you hear Wanda come in, and she is kicking ass and taking names. <laughs> I mean, it's like, no, she is not coming in with a whimper. She is coming in with a bang. Mm. And uh, and just I think the very first song I ever heard of her was her version of Let's Have a Party and, and just everything like that. Just it's so good it's it's unreal how good it is and when you consider that she was singing with hank thompson and billy gray's western swing bands and then all of a sudden she's singing like that it's crazy where did that come from yeah and then you get her aside right off stage and she's a grandma type you know that's what's so awesome about this is that you know she's a real person and yet she it knows exactly uh, what the audience wants, what they expect, and she's happy to do it. I, I just, I appreciate her. You know, she's she's a genuine person with a lot of talent. And as a songwriter, this is something we brought up in the previous uh, podcast, is that uh, she was breaking the mold not only of being a female up there playing rockabilly, but she was also writing songs for other females to sing, which I think is uh, something that was needed at the time and very much appreciated and now a great influence. Well, and if I had to say one thing about Wanda, again, longevity, man. Mm. I mean, I, I don't know exactly what year that she started singing with the, the country groups around Oklahoma. But, you know, she had this early country career where she's doing country records on DECA. Then she had this rockabilly career where she's doing rock and roll on Capitol. But then it just keeps going. You know, she did tons of country albums on Capitol. And then after that ended, she just kept going. (laughs) You know, and and then she had this whole, like, kind of gospel era, you know, where she only sang in the church, but she never stopped. And then all of a sudden, the the rockabilly revival people, you know, started bringing her around. That's when I first met her and got a chance to back her up. And she just kept going, you know. And and then just recently, maybe a a year, two years ago, I can't remember what it was, her husband died. Yeah. And I thought, okay, well, that's it. Wanda's done. Hmm. She's back on the road like three (laughs) weeks later. I'm Signing like, her book. This, how right? is this possible? <laughs> She's I amazing. I mean, man, she really is. Because I think a lot of us, uh, a lot of people who listen to music and are casual music fans, they don't understand the difference between, you know, a top 40 artist who has one or two huge hits and then that's it. They're gone. They're doing something else. And some of these people that are just 
total road warriors like Wanda Jackson. You know, my, my dad called me a few years ago. He's like, Wanda Jackson's playing the pizza place downtown in Columbia, <laughs> Missouri. Like, what? What's she doing there? You know, it's just Anywhere always something like that. Gig, man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it not only shows their dedication, which I think is a large part of it, but their musicianship. It stands the test of time. Yeah. And the ability to adapt to what the people want. I mean, you don't, it's almost like they don't make them like that anymore, you know? I don't know. I just think that's really neat. Well, that seems to be a common theme with all these guys and girls that we're talking about today is just their their individuality is so strong um, and they just love what they do. There's nobody else quite like each. Yeah, they fall right. all under fall under rockabilly, but they're all so uniquely different mm-hmm. that they've carved out this niche in the industry and they can last forever. Right. So I don't know. That's really neat. So let's hear from Wanda Jackson. So um, the first person that I toured with out of high school was Elvis Presley. Wow. So this was uh July, well, my tour with him was in July of um, 55. And I had never heard of him at that point. I, you know, I just, I didn't know who it was or who I was working with. Then I met him at a radio station that afternoon of the first day of our tour, and I was very impressed with him. He was a nice-looking guy and uh, very mannerly and nice, and so... Uh, it wasn't until that evening that, uh, that you know, I really didn't know who I was working with. I thought he was a country singer. <laughs> so I, I was in for a shock. But as it turned out, uh, I got to work with him biggest part of two years. And so there again, he became a mentor for me in, in the way of... Uh, of encouraging me to sing uh, Rockabilly, which was really sweeping the nation. And I said, well, I can't really do that because I'm a country singer. And he said, well, he said, I'm a country singer, basically, but I know you can do this music. And the kids are beginning to buy the records these days instead of the adults. And this is the kind of music they want, so you've got to try it. And he even took me to his home and um, played records and played the guitar and sang and trying to show me how I could get a feel for this. He had that much confidence in me, and so he made me promise I would at least try. (laughs) And so by 1956, I had the courage to, to try, and I think I really found my niche when I did the rockabilly songs. I just, I, I was so comfortable doing them, and I loved it, and I could just rear back and sing, you know, and so through that, I kind of established a style the for girls in this rock vein. I was the first one to record. I was just out there on a limb by myself, <laughs> and nobody knew exactly what to do with me. <laughs> But we finally got some hits, you know. It it took a few years. America just wasn't ready for a girl singing this wild rock music. And uh, they had just barely accepted Elvis and Jerry Lee and Carl Perkins and Johnny Cash. And they just wouldn't accept me at first. But finally they, uh, 
you know, rock music was just in their face and there wasn't anything they could do about it <laughs> because the kids were uh, wanting it. And I finally got a hit by 1960. And ironically, it was one of uh, Elvis's songs that he did in the movie, but it's called Let's Have a Party. And it became a, a signature song for me in rockabilly music and throughout the world. All right, so we're on our final name for this episode, and that is of Lee Rocker. Okay, so we were talking earlier about uh, the revival of Rockabilly. My gosh, this guy has got to be right there uh, getting as much accolades as just about anybody else for the rebirth of Rockabilly, at least the the era that I remember, which is uh, late 70s, early 80s, when, uh, when the Stray Cats came around and... I remember buying their records saying, what in the hell is this thing? This is fantastic. And then uh, I was so pleasantly surprised, as a lot of people were, that they were getting hits and uh, and then it becoming a real influence. And then when the revival was officially on, right, it took a little while for people, to, especially the media, to catch on and say, hey, this is Rockabilly coming back again. Oh, that was fantastic. Concerts everywhere, a lot more people coming out and playing, finally hearing that stand-up bass again. That was that was really exciting for me. What do you remember about that? So I, I guess we're close in age. I don't know. But um, I'm part of what's known as the 1968 Club, which is a really – it's a weird thing because in the Rockabilly Revival, there's this inordinate – number of people in it that were born in 1968 and i think that's just because we were like the perfect target audience to be you know very young when all this sort of 50s revival stuff was happening in the 70s with happy days and american graffiti and all that and then right when we were becoming teenagers this thing called the stray cats happened Mm -hmm. and that was when a lot of us first picked up guitars and started trying to form bands and things like that and you know, I grew up in Columbia, Missouri, which was pretty isolated. Um, but then all of a sudden, this thing called the Stray Cats is on the charts, you know, and it was fantastic. It was compared to everything else that was on the charts. I really, really liked it. And of course, the challenge when any of us who lived in these remote locations wanted to form a rockabilly band was, well, how do we get one of those? old violin looking basses <laughs> how do we make it loud and how you know how do you how did they do that it was this it was a complete mystery back then and you know lee rocker was the guy that that everybody looked at like well gosh you know he's up there doing it and slapping the bass like crazy and he's you know got a pickup on his bass how does this all this work and i remember my first couple of rockabilly bands they were just god awful we had a, a electric bass player and a lot of the remote rural rockabilly revival bands did and i remember when we convinced this bluegrass guy to play with us on upright bass i was like yeah we got an upright bass but then he didn't know how to slap it (laughs) and it was just this whole thing and 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 lee rocker is one of maybe about a dozen guys from that era who picked up the upright bass and figured out how to put a pickup on it and amplify it and get it loud enough to use in a modern rock and roll environment. Uh, but then by far, you know, had the most commercial success with any of it. It's it's astounding now when you look back on it, like, wow, those guys just came out of the gate and had these huge hits. 
and thinking about this, I want to. I don't want to be misleading um, or lead you into this, but when I when I see Lee, I I always wonder what sort of guy Billy Black must have been. You know, his main influence is my guess. And th- there's a wild guy uh, slapping the bass, riding the bass, twisting it, twirling it around. Um, you ever thought about the similarities between those two guys? Well, you did hit one nail on the head, which is that the upright bass has always been much more of a theatrical production than it is a musical thing. <laughs> uh, you know, the guy from Bill Haley and the Comets and Bill Black uh, and several of the 50s guys, they would be standing on top of the bass. They'd be twirling it around. They'd be laying on it on the ground, you know. Uh, and I think that, obviously, uh, Lee emulated that when they started the Stray Cats. Right. I remember seeing him stand on the bass and thinking, yeah, that's just like the guy on the Bill Haley and the Comets album cover. That's so cool. <laughs> so yeah, that's always been a part of it. It's interesting because I remember in that era, in the 80s, you, you, it had to be like this comical part of the act. And that's become less and less and less now. And I think that's just because there's so many more upright bass players now than there used to be. Uh, you know, now at any of these rock and billy festivals, there'll be like 50 upright bass players. And so now they're trying to be musical, you know, check out my musical chops. <laughs> Whereas back in the day, it was like nobody could really play that well. But as long as you like twirled it up in the air, <laughs> stood on it or something, that was all you really needed. So um, just sort of curiosity, where do you put the Stray Cats as far as uh, credit for the uh, the revival? Was that the first, do you think, major Rockabilly revival? Well, you know, it's interesting because it's kind of like Elvis was in the original era of Rockabilly. The Stray Cats were, by leaps and bounds, the most commercially successful of any rock, Rockabilly revival act. Hmm. But, you know, there was there was some of these other bands like Buzz and the Flyers and the Polecats and um, Levi and the Rockcats that all predated the Stray Cats by a couple of years. And when the Stray Cats moved over to England to make it big, I don't know what year that was, 79 or 80 or something like that, there was already probably 10 or 15 English rockabilly bands playing with an upright bass. Uh, So they definitely didn't start the revival. Uh, It was already kind of a thing that was happening on a cult or grassroots level. Hmm. But then... Nobody else had hits like that, you know. The, the the Blasters and the Polecats kind of barely dented the charts, I remember, back in the 80s. Uh, but the Stray Cats were huge, man. I mean, I remember all the sort of, like, uh, Teen Idol magazines. Stray Cats would be in there with Duran Duran and, <laughs> and all that, and no other band did that. Well said. So let's hear a little bit from Lee Rocker's NAM Oral History interview. Do experiment with sounds. I, I always use a three-quarter size bass, which is the standard, the most common size upright bass. There's a full size, gigantic. There's a seven-eighths. There's a half size, but a three-quarter is what you see most of the time with most players. Um, I definitely, over the years, experiment with sounds um, with different pickups, different strings, either steel strings and magnetic pickups is one of the first things that I did, and running it through uh, an Ampeg SBT amp. Uh, and getting more of a growl and getting more of an electric tone to it along with the the right hand kind of slap technique. Uh, I usually, I should say, hopefully always, uh, try to play 
for the song and for the album and for what that that vision is. In the earlier Stray Cats days, that did have more of a punk edge, and I was definitely turning the gain up a little bit more, and it was a very thick, uh, low end on it with a lot of air moving and a lot of volume. Uh, other records at other points in my career have gone for a more traditional sound with a piezo pickup and gut strings, or in the studio, no amps at all, and just experimenting with different mics in different places. Uh, so, yeah, certainly always looking for uh, different sounds, and once in a while an electric bass too, but that's just not something I do that often. I like to get those tones out of, uh, out of an electric. And since this is for Nam, I have to uh, mention that when I first got uh, an upright bass uh, out on Long Island, went to a guy, took my bass, and knew of a guy who lived in town, who winds up, I didn't realize at the time, he's a real legend, uh, also lived in Massapequa, a guy, Jess Oliver. Jess Oliver uh, designed the Ampeg B3. Uh, I, I, he designed a lot of amplifiers for Ampeg, and really the sort of uh, a genius of amplification at that time. And he had, in his basement, an electronic shop, and I brought him my bass, and we talked about what I was going to do and what I wanted to do, and we built a bracket and put it on the end of the fingerboard and took a magnetic electric bass pickup and screwed it into the bottom of the fingerboard and helped me set up my first bass. And I'm still, still using Ampeg all these years later, so i gotta, I got to send my uh, thanks out to the memory of, of, uh, of him. Yes, Oliver. Well, I have to say, I'm really sad that we've come to the end of this podcast. This has been a hell of a lot of fun. Deke, thank you so much for hanging out with us. Thank you for having me. I hope I didn't ramble on too much. Be sure to jump online and check out Deke's oral history interview, which we're going to be doing shortly after we wrap this podcast, and it'll be up online by the time you hear this. Uh, I guess, Deke, this will be coming out in the spring. Is there any, do you have any, like, tours set up or dates that you know of that far out or albums you want us to check out or... Mm, Plug well, anything, everything, <laughs> infomercials, uh, whatever. <laughs> well, probably by the spring, uh, I'll be playing at Viva Las Vegas again, uh, also a festival called the Nashville Boogie in Nashville, and then I'm going over and doing a European tour in June. Um, I don't know if this will be out by February, but I'm doing a big tour over in Spain in February, so always busy. So just, do you have a website or anything you want to I plug do. to keep up so everybody who's listening can keep up to your whereabouts it is the aptly named www.deekdickerson.com oh that was complicated good <laughs> luck people out there <laughs> thanks so much deke i really appreciate it thanks for having thanks. me thanks we'll see you guys in two weeks bye 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 <laughs>